This morning, uh, Wayne is not with us. He's traveling. Uh, he and Kathy are traveling. We have the distinct, distinguished honor of having uh, a member of Stonebriar Community Church teach us this morning. He's also the uh, campus pastor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's not a stranger to us. He's taught us before. So without much further ado, Dr. Joe Allen. Glad to have you with us this morning, Joe. Well, I want to say thank you for the privilege of being able to be here because it is a privilege. It, it is an honor for me to be here. And I uh, want to thank Doug Williams uh, and the other leadership in the class for inviting me to come. And Taylor, it's good to see you again. And um, I do remember that uh, Dr. Toussaint would always begin the class with a little funny. And I heard the other day about a pastor that had to go to the doctor. And he told the doctor when he got there, the doctor said, what's your problem? He said, well, he said, uh, I, I snore when I sleep. And the doctor looked at him and said, well, does it bother your wife? He said, Doc, it bothers the whole congregation. <laughs> you know, being the chaplain at the seminary, you hear all kinds of stories. Uh, I heard about a graduate from a couple of years ago. He prayed that God would give him a pretty wife and a big church. And uh, God gave him a pretty church and a big wife. <laughs> So, God does have a sense of humor, I guess. Uh, take your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, it's just, uh, I'm going to give you three simple verses, and we'll pretty much wring it dry this morning. I just love, love this passage. Uh, because it speaks to the heart, and I'm all about that. I'm all about uh, having my heart um, stirred and, and, and uh, stoked into flame, if you will. I think that's what uh, the Word of God should do for us. So let's just begin as you hold your Bible open there in your lap. Suppose you found out that you had to have major surgery. Uh, and, and you had the opportunity to shop around for your doctor for your specialist. I'm guessing I know what three of your top expectations would be. I'll throw these out. You can see if, if I'm correct in this. Uh, somewhere toward the top of the list, I've got it number one. Of course, if you were just in Chuck's sermon, he had it at like number five. So I looked over at my wife and I said, uh-oh. But uh, I'm guessing that if you're looking for a specialist and you've got to have major surgery, and of course, if it happens to me, it's major. If it happens to anybody else, it's minor. Uh, but somewhere toward the top of the list would be experience. For example, 38, almost 39 years ago, our son was born. This was not major surgery, but we were just kids when our son was born. Um, and um, uh, the, the, the guy that was, the doctor that was to deliver the baby looked like he was 16, and we were kids. And so, uh, you know, we, we decided, you know, just in talking between us that we were going to ask him how many babies he had delivered. And I was expecting to hear something like four or five, you know. But he said he had delivered 3,000. Uh, that's, that's almost one a day for 10 years. 
And so we felt pretty good about it, and he did a good job. We're very proud of our son. Um, but you don't really want somebody, at least we didn't want somebody who would have answered, well, this is my first. That, that's not what you want. Uh, number two, somewhere near the top of the list would be stability. I mean, no one wants to go under the knife with a doctor who has the shakes, amen? Uh, or what if the doctor walks into the operating room and he's under the influence? Uh, wouldn't that be horrible? You want somebody who is stable. You want somebody who is sober. Now, here's a third quality near the top of the list, I would imagine, and that would be um, a doctor with a good bedside manner. <clears throat> I was listening with great interest to the lady who talked about, who was it that, that said your husband is having a, an operation on his throat? I see everybody pointing, but where is June? Oh, okay. All right. When my dad was 79 years old, he lived to be 93. He died in 2007. But when he was 79, he ruptured his esophagus. And uh, fortunately, when they did get him to the hospital, and it was a big to-do, it ended up being a blip on the screen. Thankfully, he lived to be 93. But um, uh, when they got him to the doctor, uh, they were able to figure it out. It's a hard thing to diagnose. And they did several operations, and I could go into a lot of detail. Ultimately, he couldn't talk because they had damaged his vocal cords, and they, they, they ended up putting in a piece of plastic in his throat, and it pushed his vocal cords together, and he could make... Is, is that it? Same thing? Well, I can tell you, brother, let me be an encouragement to you. It worked. It worked for my dad, and I trust it'll work for you as well. So... Um, but, but the, uh, the issue is, uh, or what I was getting at, you want somebody with a good bedside manner because this doctor, when we got him there, he was as mean as a snake. <laughs> and he, wouldn't, he was mean to my mother, he was mean to my siblings, he was mean to me, and you don't want to cross him, he's operating on your dad. <laughs> so, and I remember later, we were traveling around um, uh, in the car, I was with my dad and I was driving him, and my dad was a pistol. He was just a, a great, great man. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, he starts fussing about the doctor. And I said, Dad, you, you shouldn't be talking like that about this doctor. you got to remember, he saved your life. And my dad said, oh, that was just after he figured out he couldn't kill me. <laughs> but you do want a doctor who can sympathize. I mean, it's one thing to have a male doctor deliver your baby even if he's written a textbook on it. But it's a different thing altogether to have a female doctor deliver your baby, especially when she's had her own children. She can sympathize, I promise you, she can sympathize like no male doctor ever could. If you're going to fly to California, you don't want the pilot to say, well, this is my solo flight, it's my maiden voyage. You don't want a dentist to come in when you're in the chair and he comes in walking like this, you know, with the, the uh, I almost called them weapons, but uh, you, you don't want that. Uh, you don't want a skiing instructor if you go snow skiing and every time you fall down, the instructor says, oh, get up, you big baby. You just don't want that. You want somebody with a good bedside manner. When you seek a recommendation, you want to hear from a trusted friend 
rest assured, he's the best. Well, I want to tell you this morning to rest assured, Jesus is the best. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, I want to tell you that the larger context of the passage before us this morning, uh, we could actually call it the theme of the entire book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar with this book. And it is a little bit of a difficult book to, to get your mind around. That theme is the absolute supremacy of Christ. When I was in Bible college, I took uh, the book of Hebrews as a class. And for the final exam, we had uh, one hour to trace the author's argument through the book with nothing but a pen and an unmarked Bible and some notebook paper. And that's all. That's all that we had. No notes at all. And do you know the other day I was going through a box of old papers of mine, and I came across this paper. You can tell it's yellowed. Um, I am so proud of this that I kept it. I think it's the only 99 I ever made in my life. <laughs> and it is that paper from studying the book of Hebrews. We had to trace the argument all the way through. Um, this is a, th this paper is sheer genius. <laughs> so after class, if you want to come and feast your eyes on this work of art, I'll be signing Bibles. So. But my point is that the words better, the words perfect, and heavenly appear frequently in the paper as well as in the book of Proverbs, uh, book of Proverbs. Uh, sorry, uh, the book of Hebrews, because Christ is superior in his person and his priesthood. If you read through, just give the book a cursory reading, you'll see that Jesus is a better priest than Aaron. He's under a better covenant, or we are under a better covenant because of him. Uh, in a better sanctuary, offering a better sacrifice based on better promises. And uh, up to this point in the book, we're in chapter 4, but up to this point in the book, the author has argued that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. And in this passage, Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. So I want you to remember that because that's the immediate context of what we're going to look at. The larger context, what did I say? the absolute supremacy of Christ. But the immediate context is that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the author also gives us the application of his words in verse 14. I want you to look at verse 14, and it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That's the application. I just want you to tuck these things away as we move through the lesson today. We are to hold fast our confession. Take a moment, keep your finger there or an eyeliner, uh, stick it in your Bible there, and turn over later to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Uh, I want you to notice a verse here as, uh, as he's wrapping up the book. We're in the last chapter. But there's an interesting, interesting verse in verse 22 of chapter 13, and it says, 
But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word notice of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly. He's written 13 chapters, and he calls the entire book an exhortation, an encouragement, even um, a little strong probably to say a kick in the pants, but his purpose for writing the book is to give us a word of exhortation to persevere in our faith, not the, the, the immediate people that he was writing to, he was writing it so that they would not turn away from Christianity and go back into Judaism. And he gives them the reason why. Because we have a great high priest. All of us are prone to wander. All of us. So the jump from what we are reading, which was written approximately 64 to 68 A.D., to where we are today is not a big jump. And he's telling us, let's just make this practical, or what good is it? Don't abandon your relationship with Christ for you fill in the blank. For whatever you may be tempted to abandon your relationship for. For whatever it is that you're tempted to put before the Lord Jesus in your life because Christ is superior to whatever you just put in the blank. Let me illustrate that by giving you a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I love this. If you, He said, you cannot find peace apart from Christ because it doesn't exist apart from Christ. I have a brother-in-law who lives 20 miles west of Fredericksburg. It's a little town called Harper. There's no easy way to get there. Two weeks ago, we heard Chuck preach, and we were on the way home, and we got word that they had put my brother-in-law into ICU, and uh, they had called in hospice. You would have to know him. Uh, he was an F-15 pilot and then an instructor kind of person you want defending your country can be, could be the nicest person you'd ever met. But again, mean as a snake. Horribly abusive to my sister. Not physically, verbally. I went down, drove down two weeks ago, tried again to lead him to Christ. And he was just cussing me the whole time. <sighs> there is no peace apart from Christ, and he certainly doesn't have it. My sister's words about her husband were, he, uh, he wants to die, but he's afraid of death. No peace apart from Christ. I can tell you this, You'll not have peace if you know Christ as your Savior. You'll not have the peace that he promises if you're not walking with him. And if you're not, I've got a great little verse for you. It's Proverbs 28, 13. It says, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. 
friends, that's one to cling on to. Let's look at verse 14 again. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now notice the superiority of Christ to the Levitical priesthood. He is a great high priest. If, if you look at that in the Greek, the word is megan. It comes from the word mega, which we all know means great. He is a great high priest. We're told he has passed through the heavens all the way to the throne of God. Paul referred to the third heavens in 2 Corinthians 12. It's the abode of God. He passed through the atmospheric heavens. That's the first heavens. Then he passed through the planetary heavens. That's the second heaven. So that he could go all the way to the abode of God, the throne of God in the third heavens, so that he may perform his function as our high priest. He is pleading our case before the Father. He is our high priest. Um, let me just get really basic, but this helped me at one point in my life. Let me just give you in simplest terms the difference in a prophet and a priest. A prophet is somebody who speaks for God to the people. But a priest is someone who represents the people to God the Father. Do you get it? Pretty simple. It goes on to say that he is the Son of God. It's a further emphasis on his greatness. So we come out with, if you're using the New American Standard, which I am this morning, let us hold fast our confession. Or the NIV says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Or as Chuck uses the New Living Translation, let us hold firmly to what we believe. All of us, let's hold firmly to it. We all have a tendency to wander. Let's cling on to what we believe. Why? Because we have a great high priest. And it builds from there. That's just the beginning. And what's the big deal about us having a great high priest? Well, we're about to find out. Look, if you will, in verse 15. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are, M meaning it, it, it doesn't mean, oh, I saw a billboard that, that tempted me or I saw uh, something on the Internet that, that piqued my interest in a bad way or um, it, it doesn't mean Jesus saw billboards or Jesus saw the, the Internet. What it means is in all the areas, the same areas that we're tempted in, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, just like Adam and Eve were tempted, just like Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And by the way, when Jesus refuted the devil in those areas, um, it's interesting to me that all three times he quoted Scripture, and every time he quoted Scripture to the devil, it was from the book of Deuteronomy. Who among us can uh, handle the book of Deuteronomy that well? Amen. 
The difference is that Jesus didn't sin. That's the difference. He knows your trials. He knows your temptations. He knows your weaknesses and your struggles and your hurtings. He understands. But the issue here is degree. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit. The only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Jesus knew depths and tensions and assaults of temptation, which we can never know, because we give in. We yield. He never did. It's like a prize fighter who defeats the champion. The prize fighter who defeats the champion endures more punishment than the other contenders who throw in the towel or who get knocked out before the bout is over with, before the match is finished. The only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. So Jesus, the sinless one, has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. Jesus does. He knows your weaknesses. He's been tempted. He stood the full force. He's been there. So he can say, I've done this before. He knew what it was to be hungry and to be thirsty and to be weary and to be exhausted physically. Um, When's the last time you fasted for 40 days? Can you imagine He was at the point of death. He knew what it was to live in poverty, to be lonely, to be misunderstood. John gives us his words that say, Now is my soul troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Isaiah called him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew what it was to bear the brunt of false accusations, to endure the rumors that were swirling around the events of his death, to know what it was like to have people whisper behind his back. But Jesus took life directly on the chin, the full extent. He knew what it was to bury his father, to take care of his mother, to bury a loved one with all those emotions, forsaken by his friends. He gave and he gave and he gave and he gave, and yet his friends forsook him. He knew what it was to suffer the sting of rejection. He was even abandoned by his father on the cross when he was suffering the full weight of our sin. He never sidestepped pain or issues or difficulties or hardships. So if you happen to be in this Sunday school class this morning, it's not by accident. You might think that it is. And you might be wondering, why am I even here? I'm so far from God now, why should I even try? And you're on the verge of throwing in the towel. Or maybe you're thinking, I just found out that I'm pregnant and no one else knows. (laughs) Wrong class. Yeah. Did y'all hear that? She said, it's a miracle. 
But you could be saying, I'm single and I do have all kinds of bad thoughts. Or I'm so far behind in my bills that I'm on the verge of declaring bankruptcy and it's embarrassing. Or I'm going through a divorce and the pain is more acute than I can describe. Or the doctor says, it just doesn't look good. I'm afraid it's whatever. And Jesus says, I've been there. I've gone the distance. I know your weaknesses. I felt the full force. He's telling us in this passage, I speak from a context of reality, not 2,000-year-old psychobabble, not theoretical hogwash. I'm not saying these things in a vacuum. I've been there. That's why I can relate, because I'm your great high priest. This isn't irrelevant. It's an understanding he has born from experience. I took years of reality head on. I understand at the deepest possible level. You know, there's an old story, and I I read it recently, about uh, a farmer who had some pups he wanted to sell, some puppies, and he put up a sign out near his house, and the doghouse was nearby, and a little boy was going by. The little fella was out reading the sign and, and, and looking at the doghouse, and the farmer saw him, and he came out of his house, and uh, the little boy said, uh, put his hands in his pockets, he said, uh, he said, mister, he said, uh, I- I'm interested in buying a puppy. And uh, the, the, the farmer said, well, these are, son, these are, these are golden retrievers. And these little pups have great parents. And they're very expensive. And I'm not sure you could afford them. Well, the little fella reached way down deep in his blue jeans. And he pulled out 39 cents, and he held it up, and he said, Mr., he said, is 39 cents enough for a look? And the, uh, the farmer said, the farmer said, yeah. He said, that's enough for a look. He said, Dolly, Dolly. Dolly, this gorgeous golden retriever, comes out of the doghouse and down the ramp, followed by four balls of fur. They came bounding out behind Dolly, and they followed her as she ran over to the farmer. The little boy's eyes got as big as saucers. And then he noticed another pup, the runt of the litter, came, kind of slid down the ramp, got up, struggled, doing his best to run over uh, to his mama. And uh, the little boy said, Mister, that's the puppy I want. And the, the farmer looked at him and he said, son, no, that's, that's not the puppy you want. He said, that's the runt. That, 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 little, pup's, that little puppy's never going to be able to run and play with you like the others would. About that time, the little boy took his pants leg, his jeans, and he pulled them up. And when he did, he exposed a brace that went down both sides of his leg and it actually attached into his boot the sole of his shoe. He said, Mister, I don't run so well myself. And that little pup's going to need somebody who understands. We'll look at verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy 
and may find grace to help in time of need. You know, having this kind of a high priest, a great high priest, one who was tempted, one who never gave in, one who understands, I don't know about you, but doesn't that do something to you? Doesn't that uh, build confidence in you? Doesn't that engender some confidence? So we're exhorted to approach him boldly. We don't need the mediation of earthly priests. There's no barrier for us. We are to draw near. We are exhorted to draw near to the throne of grace. What language is that? How lovely, how captivating, how memorable. A throne of grace. Doesn't it just sound pretty? It speaks of his sovereignty. It's a throne. And it speaks of his benevolence. It's a throne of grace. And when we go to him, especially when we're beat up, especially when we're tired, worn out, beleaguered, bruised, any time, day or night, we can receive mercy. Because we failed so often. And we can receive grace. Because life goes on. And we need God's help. It says it's there we find help in time of need. Help that is appropriate to the time it can be translated. Literally, the Greek says, timely help. Timely help. My wife teaches first grade, and the other day, just last week, I think it was last Thursday, they presented her, the, the class mothers presented her with a notebook. Um, those of you that are real that, that do crafts, I almost said those of you that are real crafty, but uh, those of you that do crafts, um, this was really a crafty notebook. And uh, it, it had all kinds of pictures. It was real nicely put together. And in the, in the back of it, it had uh, letters. And this was all unbeknownst to Lindsay. Um, but the kids had written, uh, had answered some questions. Uh, I just want to read you one because it seems to fit so well. This student is named Atticus Junker. You got to love the name. I haven't heard that name since I watched To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus. So he writes, uh, here are the blanks. Thank you for being such a great teacher. And he wrote in Miss Allen. You make me feel special when you, and then he wrote another sentence. The best thing you do with our class is, and then he wrote another sentence. I think you are, and then he filled in, he filled in the best. And this is from Atticus, and here's a picture I drew of you, which if y'all need a good laugh, come up after class, and there's another good laugh. Uh, but if you're taking some notes, try to write this down. It's either a P or a B. L-A-N-E-W-I-T-H-P-L-A-D-O-W. It's just like all one long word. The best thing you do with our class is, did you get it? I didn't think so. I couldn't even read it. Lindsay had to read it to me. Well, well let, me, let, me give, let, me, let me give a word of explanation here. This kid came at the end of the year. <laughs> she teaches first grade. He hadn't been here from the beginning or... 
or she would have felt like a complete failure. But at any rate, he came at the end of the year. He's only been in her class a few weeks. But the best thing you do with our class is uh, – what is it? Pl- playing with Play-Doh. Playing with Play-Doh is what that sentence is. But the sentence, the, the sentence I really wanted you to get was this one. You make me feel special when you, and he filled in, when you help me when I need help. Or actually he said, when I need help. <laughs> it's exactly what we're reading here. We can go to the throne of grace and we can draw near with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In a timely manner, timely help. So go boldly. Go boldly. He understands. He wants to help. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Go to him. He is your great high priest. That's what this passage is saying to us. I'm going to close now with two stories back to back that also illustrate this. Uh, Our son and his family uh, lived for eight years in Bangladesh. Uh, They were missionaries there. And things got so dangerous, they have two small children, things got so dangerous that they have moved over to India. Um, By the way, my son married Tim Tebow's sister. Maybe you've heard of him, but that's my only claim to fame. And I can put that when I sign your Bible if you'd like. But at any rate, uh, the the little fella, my grandson, his name is probably guess my father's name was Joe I'm Joe my son's Joe and he is Jojo so uh, Jojo is eight and our granddaughter is uh, 11 is that right nine and 11 and uh, she's a blonde-haired blue-eyed beauty and things just got too dangerous I, I think it wouldn't bother Joey to die a martyr's death but he said, I just can't do that to the kids. So the International Mission Board gave them a way to uh, go over into India. And everybody where they are speaks Bengali, so they didn't have to learn a new language. Uh, and they can also, he can go back into uh, the country and make sure that the work is continuing. But uh, the reason he went there in the first place is because nobody else would go. And he wanted to, I think it's Romans fifteen twenty. he wanted to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached. He told us a story early on. Uh, another thing I need to tell you before I continue the story is that when he was little, he never cried very much. Very, uh, always had a very strong grasp on spiritual things and uh, pretty amazing. He came out saying, what can I do to please you? Whereas our daughter came out um, She's a successful attorney and works for her church, and obviously we, our lives are really focused around our kids. Um, so anyway, uh, getting back to the story, he, he went up into what they call the hill tracks in uh, Bangladesh, 
and it's up near the, the people who actually live there are probably Chinese descent and they've come down uh, they're not really Bengali but they live and they're they're essentially Stone Age and it's hard for me to to grasp the fact that people on this planet still live like that but he traveled back and took like all every mode of transportation you can imagine uh, took a, a train and then a a, a bus and and a boat and a motorcycle at one point they had to ford a river and they would go across the river holding up the uh, projector and the generator and the Jesus film that they show they get permission before they go into these villages and uh, so he, he got permission from the tribal leader, and they set up the Jesus film, and what they normally do is they'll show the Jesus film, and then they'll stop and halfway through it, and he'll preach the gospel to them and give them an invitation, and then they'll continue on with the rest of the Jesus film. Well, uh, they got there. They got permission. They were really worn out, really tired. Joey was telling us this story. Uh, they... they uh, they, he said they had about 35 people there. It was after dark, and 35 men from the village. And he said at the time he was starting off the conversation by asking them, what do you think the greatest problem in the world is? And uh, you can start a presentation in a million different ways, but he was just using that at the time. And so he asked, what, what do you think the greatest problem in the world is? And whatever they answer, whether it's putting groceries on the table or the stock market or whatever they say, um, he'll say, yes, that's a, that's a, a tremendously important uh, issue, but there's a greater problem, and then he'll talk about the problem of sin, and then he'll go right into how Jesus solved that problem for us. So they show half of the Jesus film, and they get up there. Um, he gets up to, to preach to them, and uh, he asks them, what do you th- think the greatest problem in the world is? These are Stone Age people now. Um, One young man in his 20s stood up and he said, and I remember Joey telling us this, he said, uh, we want to know how to get to heaven. And when he told us, he he started weeping and he said, "Um, Mom, Dad, he said, "I I couldn't catch my breath. He said, I almost fell to a knee. And he said, I was able to, to give them a clear gospel presentation that we're sinners, that uh, we owe a penalty, the penalty is hell, Jesus died on the cross, he suffered in our place, he paid the sin debt that we should have to pay, he came back from the dead, and that by simple faith in Jesus, you can also know that you're going to heaven. He said, all 35 of them raised their hands saying, we want to trust Christ as our Savior. Now, I inject that story because the next one doesn't have that kind of an ending. It's got a different kind of an ending, an ending that fits more with the passage that we're looking at. It's these three simple verses. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He told us this about uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, He's in India. He had an opportunity to preach uh, in a leper colony. And yes, they still exist today. And he was, he was determined to go into the leper colony and, and hug them 
and shake hands with them. And we said, well, we didn't know you did this. We didn't know you went into a leper colony. And he said, well, I sent you pictures. And we said, what? He said, look at your phone. And, we, we, and sure enough, he had sent us pictures. We told him we didn't know what they were. We didn't know why you were sending us those pictures. He said, blow them up and take a close look at their hands. And essentially, they don't have hands. They have nubs. But uh, he went in to preach, and he said, you know, there's a pretty strict caste system in India. And if you're in the outcast caste, then he said, you're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel, and you can't get out of it. But if you're a leper, if you're a leper, you're an outcast of the outcast. Um, Even if you don't have it, but say your grandfather has it you're considered unclean. So Joey was determined he was going to go in. He was so intense and inspired to go in and to preach to these people who have never heard the gospel as far as anybody knows before. Now, they didn't speak Bengali, so he had a pastor who was there to help translate for him. So he goes in, and before he starts you know, shaking hands with these people, he asks the pastor, he said, now, is this the contagious kind of leprosy? And the pastor answered him this way, 100% not, mostly. <laughs> and my son said, you can't, you can't put those two together. Is it or is it not? And I guess he didn't know. But Joey went in and shook hands with him, hugged him, and he was on a platform sort of like this, at least I picture it that way in my mind, and they had gathered up the leper colony, and they had several people out, and it's outdoors, and uh, so Joey is beginning to talk to them, and a storm is forming, but he can't see it because it's forming behind him. And the clouds were getting very dark and ominous, just very foreboding. But he's not noticing it. But he is noticing that the wind is picking up. And the wind hits him hard in the back. And then it it, it is so hard, as a matter of fact, that it begins to to blow up uh, dust and, and dirt and trash. And these lepers are sitting there on the ground while he's trying to talk to them. And the wind is getting almost deafening. And one of the lepers hollers out, you better let these people go because they can't outrun this storm. And a few of them got up and started to hobble off. And as they did, as they started to hobble off, he turned, Joey turned, and he saw what was going on behind him with the dark clouds and the storm coming and and the clouds gathering. And Joey said, I turned to the storm clouds and yelled at the top of my lungs. He said, no one could really hear me, but I yelled as loud as I could. No one could hear him because of the noise of the wind blowing so hard. But I cried out, Lord God, make it stop. And every, when he was telling us this, he was crying, which he hardly ever cries. And he would have to stop and gain his composure And he told us, he said, Mom, Dad, I wasn't rebuking the storm. I was asking God to rebuke the storm. 
I knew exactly what I was doing. And he said, I want to tell you the truth. He said, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't like the storm instantly dispersed. It wasn't like somebody flipped a switch. He said, but what it was like was within 30 seconds, the storm clouds had dispersed. The sun came back out. They gathered up those that had tried to hobble away. They brought them back. And I was able to preach the gospel to them, Joey said. I was able to share Jesus Christ with them who had never heard of him before. And we said, did anyone trust Christ? Did anyone make a decision? Did anyone believe in him as their Savior? And he said, no, not one. Not one. But based on the other story, he knew he was planting a seed because the other story where all 35 trusted Christ, he went to the young man afterwards and he said, how did you know to ask that question? And the young man said, a messenger from a neighboring village came to our village. And that's all he knew. He didn't know if he had shared part of the gospel or the entire presentation of the gospel. But he had planted seeds. And in the first story, 35 trusted Christ. In the second story, seeds were planted. I began to think and think about this story that, that uh, Joey shared with us in this leper colony. And it occurred to me, it fits verse 16 so well. Let us therefore draw near with confidence. And that's exactly what he did. He turned back and he, he looked at the clouds and with great boldness, with great confidence, I think the King James uses the word boldness, he cried out, Lord God, make it stop. And he said within 30 seconds, it had stopped. Someone taught me a long time ago that God is, is as concerned for you as the people you minister to. These people heard the gospel. They heard the gospel we know his word will not return void. But I think it's a perfect illustration of this verse because he was discouraged and he knew that these people would not have most likely another opportunity like this one. And he was so discouraged and so disheartened when many of them got up to leave and hobble off. So he went boldly to the throne of grace and he found help in a time of need. Let's bow, shall we? And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to read these three verses because they are so rich. And I love them, and I hope you will too, if you don't already. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Our Father, that's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.